You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning. Good to see you here today. Um, Today will be the last day that we're in our foundations series for right now. Um, So that you know, we Chip talked about this the first week. um, But this is a series that we will revisit um, once or twice a year, just constantly coming back to things that we feel like we need to address that we believe that we value as a church, what defines us. Um, Over the last few weeks, Um, We've talked about why do we preach, Um, not just preach the gospel, but why do we get up on Sundays and speak from the word of God? Um, Why do we disciple? Why do we tithe? And uh, this morning, um, we're going to talk about why we observe the Lord's Supper. Um, You know, the Old Testament is filled with all kinds of people, acts, sacrifices, events, that were all um, foreshadowing Jesus. Now, of course, the people who were experiencing those things at the time, or even the people themselves, they didn't know that these things were foreshadowing Jesus. We have the luxury on our side of history of looking back and seeing how powerful that, that was and it is. Well, today there are two ordinances that we observe in the church that allow us to look back as we observe them and to look forward. The first one of those is baptism. Um, You know, Jesus said in Matthew 28, he gathered his disciples before he was going to ascend back to heaven. And he said to them, he gave them what we call the great commission and said, go into all the world, um, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. Well, A few years before this, right when Jesus began his ministry, the very first thing that he did was he went to the Jordan River where his cousin John the Baptist was baptizing people and his cousin baptized him. Did Jesus, the son of God, need to be baptized? Your instinct is to say, well, of course not. But yes, he did. First of all, he did to fulfill the prophecy that said he would be, but also he did it to set an example. Because the very first act of obedience that we experience as a follower of Christ is to be baptized. Um, In Romans chapter 6, if you want to look at this verse, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, the apostle Paul um, gives a really powerful insight into baptism. When he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we understand that when we go under the water, it is the symbol of Jesus going into the grave. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We come out of that water as a symbol of Jesus being raised from the dead. It's also a symbol of our sin being washed away. When you read this scripture, you understand why after we baptize someone in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we then here at the brook say, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk a new life. This is what Paul declared. 
So the first ordinance that we observe is baptism. And the second, I know the suspense is killing you since it's the title, um, we observe the Lord's Supper. If you look with me in Matthew chapter 26, in Matthew 26, Jesus has just had the Passover meal with the disciples. It's the night before he is going to be crucified, which remember the disciples, as many times as Jesus has told them what's going to happen, you and I would be in the same boat with them. They don't understand. But he has the Passover meal with them. And if you look in Matthew 26, 26, it says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat this. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. This morning, we want to take an in-depth look at the foundational question, why do we observe the Lord's Supper? To do that, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you would turn there with me, in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul, um, this, this letter is a lot of instruction to the church and in the in the beginning of chapter 11 Paul is commending the Corinthian church on things that they know and he's seen affirmation that they followed through with or maybe they've had a little bit of a, a lack of an understanding and so he's going to clear that up but he's commending them well you get to verse 17 and Paul says but in the following instructions I do not commend you Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, anyone confused? I mean, let's just be real here. I mean, Paul's kind of, you're reading this and you're going, what is he talking about? Let's break it down a little bit. If anything in the church ought to bring unity to God's people, it would be observing the Lord's Supper together. And Paul says, not only is it not creating unity, there are divisions among you because of it. This makes absolutely no sense. Now, it's important to remember that in this day and time, the Lord's Supper was almost always attached to a feast or celebration. Remember the very first time the Lord's Supper was observed when Jesus did it with the disciples. It was at the end of the Passover meal. Um, It would be in that kind of environment that many, many times um, this would be observed and celebrated. 
And so what's happening here is that there are people, before we ever even get to communion, that are eating and drinking excessively. There are rich people who are gorging themselves at the expense of the poor, not even being able to participate. There are people who are being drunk on the communion wine. And Paul basically throws down a hammer and says, what the heck are you doing? If you want to eat too much and drink too much, you have a home, don't you? You just stay there because you're missing the point. Now, we don't typically have that experience because by the time we eat communion, quite frankly, you're probably all somewhat hungry. And, and I, I actually enjoy the fact that that typically happens for me. And uh, I don't know if you're like me, but a shot glass of grape juice and a little unleavened bread, that doesn't really satisfy me. And that's the point. That we're to walk away from this with somewhat of an understanding that Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy me through the symbolism. But so to further affirm what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, which we'll come to in a few minutes and we talked about last week, Paul is also kind of saying here, don't harbor bitterness or resentment with someone. Don't let there be fractures in the relationships among you and think that you can come and take the bread and the cup together. It doesn't work that way. So Paul starts out by having to specifically address some things going on in the Corinthian church. Now he moves on into this broader address or understanding of the Lord's Supper. Look with me in verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So within the the, the verses that we just read, There's some theology that I think is important to understand. And there's also some ecclesiology. What's ecclesiology? Well, basically, it's just the study or the understanding of the church and the people of God. So let's start with the theology and let me preface it by saying what I'm about to tell you. You're you're not going to look at here and say, well, no, wait a minute. I I don't see that written here. It's not. But we need to understand it anyways. There are some views of the Lord's Supper and communion that I believe are very, very helpful for us to understand. Because all over the world, churches observe the Lord's Supper. But to say that we approach it differently is an understatement. All right? So the first view that we want to look at is the Roman Catholic view. And if you're ready for the big hairy word that comes along with it, The word is transubstantiation. It probably took me two weeks of being in seminary before I could even pronounce this word. Transubstantiation. Um, This is the only time I will ever use this word. What does this mean? Here's what it means. That the bread and the wine literally become 
the body and the blood of Christ. Think on that for a moment. So, partaking of communion in the Roman Catholic Church, this, as a Roman Catholic, you believe that this provides saving grace for your soul. That once the priest blesses, and only a Roman Catholic priest blesses the bread and the cup, that they literally become the body and the blood of Christ. Well, because of this, naturally, this is the only thing that provides saving grace for your soul. So now further understand that if you are a strict, what we will call good Roman Catholic, what comes along with this is the belief that if someone else is not a Roman Catholic, they're not saved. Because you have not partaken of the body and the blood of Christ, and that brings saving grace to your soul. Now, how would someone come up with this idea? Well, first of all, you misunderstand Jesus. Because when Jesus got up with the disciples and took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, friends, Jesus did not mean literally, this is my body. I mean, I don't mean to be silly here, but how could he? His body was right there with them. When he said, this is my blood, he was speaking to them in symbolism. But another facet, though, of even being able to believe something of this nature also further reveals that the the Roman Catholic Church does not view the priesthood of the believer as we do. That Peter has been very, very clear with us, along with Paul and Jesus, that now because of the work of Christ, you and I can approach God. And we don't need a mediator. Our mediator's name is Jesus. So, transubstantiation. I'm going to look forward to next Sunday and hearing from some of you how you work that into a sentence this week. Now, the Lutheran view, and when we say Lutheran, we're not just talking about confined to the Lutheran church, but all of the beliefs that have flowed out of Luther's theology. The Lutheran view, it's not too much better uh, in saying it, it's consubstantiation. And in the view of consubstantiation, I know that you're totally loving this and soaking it in. The bread and wine do not cease to be bread and wine, but simultaneously the body and the blood of Christ are somehow mysteriously present. And so while in consubstantiation, the elements, the bread, the cup, they are not a source of salvation. They are, without a doubt, a source of sanctification, that they further make you holy. They further purify you. So we have transubstantiation and we have consubstantiation. And now that brings us to the Baptist view or the evangelical view. This is what our view would be, and I hate to disappoint you, there is no hairy word here. Um, The word that we view this as is symbolism. Symbolism. I I just can't make up a big hairy word for symbolism. Don't need to. But the way we interpret the scripture, what we believe is that the bread and the wine are a symbolic symbolic 
representation of the body and the blood of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not only a physical act. This is a spiritual act of worship. And it's an acknowledgement that we find the true nourishment that we need for our souls only in the spiritual presence of Christ. But when you come a little bit later, if you come alone or you come with someone else, with your family or whatever, you are not literally drinking the body and the blood of Christ. It is symbolism. Okay? So there's your theology. Now let's move to the understanding of how does this apply to us? What do we do with this? What's Paul saying to point us into action here? Well, there are two significant things that the Apostle Paul says happen every time we take communion. I should rephrase that. There are two things that are supposed to happen. That doesn't mean they're automatically going to happen, but are supposed to happen every time that we observe the Lord's Supper. The first is this. We remember what Jesus did, okay? That his body was broken and his blood was spilled for us. We remember, Paul quotes Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. But we also proclaim that Jesus' death, because of his death and his resurrection, we now anxiously await his return. You see in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Lord's Supper is a remembrance and a proclamation. And make sure you understand, it's not an either or, it's always both. It's a remembrance and a proclamation. It's not one or the other. All right, moving on. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves, if we discerned ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And the other things I will give direction for when I come. Because of the magnitude of the significance uh, of this ordinance, what it represents, what it symbolizes, we are not to take it lightly. In fact, Paul says, do not take it in an unworthy manner. Well, what does that mean? First of all, let's talk about what it means to the unbeliever, to someone who has not acknowledged Christ. Why why do we need to talk about that? Well, I have had numerous people over the years ask me, and I've heard even more people than that ask this question. And to be honest with you, I think it's a good question. Is it okay, is it appropriate for someone who's not a Christian 
to take the Lord's Supper. Well, what I'm inclined to just kind of say off the cuff or to initially respond with is, I, I don't know that like appropriate, inappropriate is really the word, more of like relevant or irrelevant. Like what's the point? But then I have to stop and say, now wait a minute, how seriously do I take the Apostle Paul? Because I'm thinking that like, if I take Jesus this seriously, Paul's like right here. That's the way I see it. So maybe I ought to rethink this. And I would have to say, you know, maybe it's not an issue of appropriate or relevant. I think it's impossible. It is impossible for someone who has not put faith and trust in Christ to observe the Lord's Supper. Don't misunderstand me. It's obviously physically possible for them to walk down here, go get some wine or some juice and some bread and observe it. But it means nothing. Look at verse 28 with me. Paul says, let a person examine himself. Then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Part of our remembrance of what Christ has done is an examination of what we have done. An examination of what we have done in the past. An examination of what we've done leading up to this moment. But part of our remembering what Jesus has done is found in examining what we have done, which brings us to a recognition of why Jesus had to do it in the first place, okay? And for someone who's never put their faith and trust in Christ, they've never done this to begin with. They've never come to that place of recognizing, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus because he shed his blood, because he died on the cross for me and rose from the dead, I can find life and salvation through him. If someone hasn't come to that point, the Lord's Supper, uh, this goes way beyond putting the cart before the horse. It doesn't mean anything yet. But so let's go back to us, the Christian and the church. Paul says, don't eat in an unworthy manner. I think that all of us, we, we could say, well, hey, you know, are any of us really worthy? That's not what Paul's talking about here. Of course, we're not worthy. That's why Jesus went to the cross for us. Only he was the lamb worthy to be the sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. So no, you and I have not done anything to make ourselves worthy. But Paul says here, don't take it in an unworthy manner. What does he mean? Well, this goes back to that examination. The examine yourselves. That when we remember what Christ has done, we're to examine what we have done. There's two parts of this examination, and it's important that we recognize both of them. The first part is the confession of sin. Look at verse 31. Paul says, but if we judged ourselves, if, if we looked at ourselves objectively, if we discerned ourselves truly, we would not be judged. This is very, very reflective of Psalm 51 and Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, King David in verses 23 and 24, 
He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, know my thoughts. Lord, if there is anything in me offensive to you, leading me away from you, Lord, bring me back and lead me in the way everlasting. And if you're familiar at all with Psalm 51, this is the Psalm that David pours out after having committed sin, the sin of adultery, the sin of murder. And he comes before God and and just says, I know that my whole life is filled with iniquity and sin. God, create in me a clean heart. Paul is saying if we recognize our sin, then we're not going to ultimately be judged for it because we realize that I have some things to confess and lay before the Lord. Think about this. What are we remembering through the Lord's Supper? We are remembering that Jesus Christ, through his body and his blood, atoned for our sins, paid the price for our sin. He was our substitute for what we could not do. And so if I walked in here this morning with a conscious awareness that I had spent last night just what I'll call swimming in sin, and I came in here this morning without really a morsel of brokenness, much less repentance, but it was time for the Lord's Supper, and I thought, well, you know, I don't want anybody looking at me weird. Like, why isn't he taking it? I just thought, I'll just come up there and take it, you know. Thanks, God. Um, Paul says, I am drinking judgment upon myself. Now, does that mean, like, I'm going to lose my salvation? Does that mean, boy, you better not be near Brian when he takes that because lightning is going to come through the roof. Kabam, it's over. Am I going to hell for this? I don't think so. But am I going to face the discipline of God? I sure hope so. Because what has happened in that moment is I have failed to recognize not only the depth of of my own sin, but I have stopped remembering the magnitude of my Savior's sacrifice. Folks, if there's anything that we observe in worship that we better not take lightly, it is the thing that we're doing because Jesus Christ himself said, do this. And as you do it, remember Remember, so part of this examination is the confession of sin. And I'm just going to preface this by saying, I think that part B, we like even less. And it is the reconciliation of broken relationships. I don't know if you noticed through the verses that we read, verses 17 through 34, Paul says the words, come together five times. So when you come together as a church, all over the place, when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So let's be clear. Paul, the apostle, was not one of the Beatles. That was McCartney. So if anybody was copying anybody else here, McCartney was copying the apostle Paul. 
all right? Come together. What Paul is implying here, and he is strongly implying that that's exactly what we are to do through this act of worship. Come together, all right? And so if there is division, we are to seek its healing. I mentioned this a moment ago, and now we're finally here. This is reflective of Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24 that we looked at last week where Jesus said, if you are bringing your gift to the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you, leave it there. Go and reconcile to your brother, then come offer your gift. Church family, I would say that the same applies. If you're about to take the Lord's Supper and you realize that there is something broken between you or your brother and sister in Christ, don't just come up here and flippantly take the bread and the cup remembering that Jesus died on the cross so not only that you and I might be saved, but so that we might be reconciled to one another and just kind of go on, well, maybe I'll call them later. You know, they're probably busy. They're probably in church too. I think heaven would stop and pay attention to a Christian walking out of church to go call another brother or sister across town and tell them to walk out of church and come and meet me to be reconciled with one another. Way more important than whether or not you physically walk down here or back there and take the bread and the cup this morning. Because what you are doing in that act is you are literally recognizing why Jesus died. That's uncomfortable. That was definitely not like my plan for the morning. Like I I got somewhere to go after this. How's that going to work? I don't know. I'm just saying maybe if we every once in a while spontaneously, immediately obeyed the Lord, it might disrupt some things. And I am all for that disruption. Paul says, examine yourselves. And he means business. So now understanding this, don't we have a little bit better of an understanding of why it's not only irrelevant, and inappropriate, but it's impossible for someone who has never put their faith in Christ, someone who's never recognized, confessed, and repented of their sin to take the Lord's Supper. It it doesn't mean anything. But let me add this. I don't see here that Paul has concern with the unbeliever. Paul is addressing and writing the church. And he's concerned with the people of God taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He's concerned with someone who has been washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus, failing to recognize the magnitude of what's happened there, failing to recognize the depth of the forgiveness that they've experienced. And so, again, Paul says, don't take this in an unworthy manner. Instead, examine yourselves. If ever there was a time I would not want to take for granted um, to maybe share with you, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, 
Why do we do this? Well, allow me for two minutes to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church family, I want to, I want to, you know, when teachers give, like they say, hey, the test is Friday, but you can use your notes. Is there anything that pumps you up more in the world? You can use your book or your notes. I want to get to a place. We're going to get to a place where on a Sunday morning, I want to just be able to say, hey, somebody share the gospel. And you stand up and you share the gospel. Because if you are a follower of Jesus and you can't explain the gospel, we're in trouble. So allow me, I'm going to go first, take notes. Get out your phone, hit record. I'm allowing it, all right? Jesus Christ, the son of God, gave his life so that we might have life. Why did he do this? Well, because all of us, every single one of us, sin. We all missed God's standard. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've, we've missed God's standard. And now let me share the bad news with you. The wages and the consequence and the price of that sin, and there's no measure for it. One little sin, bam, and it's the full measure. The, the weight and the consequence of that sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ died so that you and I might live. And because Christ died, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We sang it earlier. I will call upon the Lord for he alone is strong enough to save. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so because of this, as his people, every time that we come together, we remember and we proclaim. That's the gospel. Every day that I wake up and I have breath, that's what gives me life. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In just a moment, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take the bread and the cup, and we're going to remember, and we're going to proclaim. But I also want you to know that as we sing, we're going to do the very same thing. I want to read the lyrics to you of the song that we're going to sing in just a few moments. 
And I will just tell you how the Lord works. Like Lee didn't really know exactly what I was going to preach about the Lord's Supper. But here's the song that we're going to sing in response this morning. It's called Hallelujah, What a Savior. The words are, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Stand unclean, no one else could. In my place condemned, he stood. And now his nearness is my good. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. And now in heaven lifted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The first thing that we do is we remember Hallelujah, praise to the one whose blood has pardoned me. Oh, what a Savior, Redeemer, and King, your love has rescued me. But remembering always causes us to proclaim. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, uh, we just say thank you. Lord, thank you for laying your life down. Lord, we, we know that no one took it from you, but that you laid it down. And Lord, yes, you did it so that we might have eternal life. But Lord, that eternal life is about us being reconciled back to the Father. Lord, us being reconciled to one another. Lord, us going from death to life, all things being made new. And so Lord, we we pray this morning that every time we have the opportunity to take this bread and this cup, this fruit of the vine, Lord Jesus, the next time you take it with us, it will be because the kingdom has come. But Lord, now as as we are here and your kingdom is coming in us and through us, Lord, we just pray that we would have the courage and the humility to examine ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would create in us a clean heart. Lord, that you would search us. You know us. Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us anything that we need to confess, any sin that we need to repent of, Lord, any relationship that we need to take steps to heal. Father, we pray that you would help us to not be consumed by the things that we can't control, but be obedient to what you've called us to do.
in these next moments um, as we sing, as we come. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, some of our leaders, pastors, elders will be in the back at the tables. They would love to share the gospel with you, pray with you. Whether you come to the table alone with a friend, with your family, I encourage you to take those moments of reflecting on what Jesus Christ has done and what he is still doing. Lord Jesus, be exalted in these moments. We praise you. We love you. We lift you up. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.